have been set a stage, I guess, with a challenging passage. Uh, we will be in Genesis 25 this morning, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And as you're turning there, my one of my favorite books of all times, a uh, series of books really, is The Lord of the Rings. Um, it's been almost 20 years since the movies came out and 70 since the books came out. So I'm not really concerned about spoiling anything for you all. You've had ample time to familiarize yourself with those texts. But one of the questions I've been thinking about, who is the hero of the book? Is it Gandalf, the wizard who gathers everybody together to accomplish the task? Is it Frodo who goes and sets out on the task to destroy the one ring to rule them all? Or is it his buddy Sam who helps him to persevere, who gets him to the end, who accomplished everything? Or is it Aragorn, the king, who assumes his rightful place on the throne after the whole series is over? And you know what? Have you ever been reading the Bible and thought some of the similar questions? These stories, these chapters, these books are filled with story after story of men and women. Are they the heroes? Church, the Bible is about God. God is the hero. It is filled with men and women who make some big mistakes. It is filled with men and women who do amazing and great things for God. But one thing is sure, that God is the hero of the Bible. He's always doing things. He's in control of everything. And He's doing it for our joy and for His glory, as we talked about last week. And so when you leave this afternoon, we will have finished half of the book of Genesis as we finish chapter 25. We will look back and we will also look forward of how God is the hero as we look in our story this morning. So God is the hero. Would you pray with me as we get started? Father, we thank you that we get together as your people, that we exist as your people because of the things that you did in and through the men and even a woman in Rebecca in our story this morning. We praise you for that. Help us to see wondrous things in your word, that we would worship you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'll start reading in Genesis chapter 25, verse 1. It says, Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Eshrim, Latushim, and Limim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. And these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days and the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people, Isaac and Ishmael. His sons buried him in the cave of Machpelah 
in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried, Abraham was buried, and his wife with his Sarah his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son and settled in Beer Lahoy Roy. You just gotta read them confidently and quickly and just move on. So this passage looks back as God being the hero. And we are at a key turning point in the book of Genesis. We are ending the account of Abraham. Sarah died, as we saw a couple weeks ago. Abraham took another wife after her death and had some more children. And it is clear in the text that these are not the children of the promise. And we know that because of what Abraham does, but also knowing that it is Isaac through whom the blessings would continue to flow. It is one thing to live a long life. Abraham was 175 years old. It's another thing to live a happy life. In this obituary, Abraham is pointed out to the fact that he was old, but that he was also at peace with much satisfaction in the things before him. And it was not that he was just many and days, but he was full of days. And we know his story, the troubles that he went through. We saw back last week. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord has blessed Abraham in all things. And it's time for this blessing now to pass on to the next generation in the promised family, because after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled in Beer Lahoy Roy. And as always in the book of Genesis, the attention is drawn to the powerful hand of God, that God is always the hero, friends. The divine hand of God is the source of all of Abraham's blessings. The divine hand of God is the source of the promises to Abraham. The promise to Abraham as a father of many nations that we saw in Genesis 17 has happened. God has fulfilled his promises to Abraham. And in verse 11, we see the most important action, that Isaac would inherit the blessings. This shows that the Lord's steadfast love of thousands to those who love him and keep his commandments and how God's steadfast love endures forever. And so at his death, Abraham sends everyone away in his family except for Isaac. Isaac is to remain in Canaan, as we were reminded last week. Everyone else is to leave so that Isaac can focus on his task, his calling. Abraham is, is acting under the providential hand of God in a seemingly harsh way of sending his entire family. But it is right because Isaac is the true inheritor of the land and the promises. And as Abraham is buried in the same tomb that his wife Sarah was buried in, I think the people of Israel, when they heard this story coming back into the promised land, would have heard this account entering back into the land, across the river, looking over the land and saying, that is 
our land. We own land there. Our family is buried in that land. This is the land that God has promised us. And so, church, God is the hero. So for almost 15 chapters, God's hand has been moving to get us to this point. From the call of Abraham to the separation and challenges of, that Abraham had with his nephew Lot, to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, to the mistakes that Sarah and Abraham made with Hagar, to the birth of Isaac, to his attempted sacrifice of his son, everything is leading to this point. And this is why we see Abraham's life is full. It's a full life that God's hand has been moving. And so as we look back, friends, God is the hero. In the midst of our doubts, in the midst of the doubts, the betrayals and sin, adultery, wicked neighbors, God is the hero. His providential hand is moving and working for his glory and for his people's joy. And we see another chapter close as we look back on God's promises. We'll pick it back up in verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar bore, who Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Neboeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Edbiel, Mibsha, Mimsha, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tema, Jeder, Nephish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And he settled over against all his kinsmen. And so Ishmael comes back into the story to bury his father. And it's another transition, a touching transition as he comes back in. But we are ending another chapter in the story of Genesis. God is closing the book on another key figure in Ishmael and setting up Isaac as the next patriarch. And so just as Abraham sent away his other sons, Ishmael, the firstborn son, goes into the region of Havilah and Shur. And this is north and south of Canaan, hundreds of miles away from the families of Isaac. And so in our context, it would be like sending everyone from central Vermont either to Nova Scotia or Boston and New York to get them out of the way of what God is doing. And there was competition between Ishmael and Isaac, that God separated them to avoid this further conflict and emphasize Isaac's place in Canaan. What we see here again is God fulfilling more and more promises. When we look back as God being the hero, he's fulfilling the promises, as you might recall, twice that he gave to Ishmael's mother, Hagar. And so God is setting the table. He is getting things ready for the promised family to continue. What Moses wants us to see is that the Lord fulfilled his promises. And these rather minor promises that he fulfilled, he will surely fulfill the larger promises, the greater promises through the chosen 
line of Isaac, and we'll see more of that today. My wife and I, we recently discovered a show on Netflix called Designated Survivors. Some of you may have seen it. Uh, every episode, and especially the first season, leaves you wanting to watch the next one. We didn't stay up too late, but there were a couple times where we just had to keep watching. It draws you in in anticipation of the next season. And so, friends, we are at the next season, the next episode. The director has set things up perfectly for who to be the hero, the director to be the hero, God. The cliffhangers at the end of each section prepare the way for the great story moving forward as God is the hero of the story. And so Abraham's chapter is closed, Ishmael's chapter is closed, and we move to the next chapter. Pick this back up in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. It's been a while, but when we were back in Genesis chapter 2, I reminded you of some words we see in our passage this morning. And it signifies a huge change in topic, a huge section of the book of Genesis. And it's the words... These are the generations. And scholars are agreed that this is a huge chapter, section of the book of Genesis, where the reader is to see we are moving on in the story. We saw this with Adam in chapter 2. We saw this with Noah in chapters 5 and 6. Abraham didn't get this signified of him, but his father Terah did in chapter 11. And now we have it twice in chapter 25 with Ishmael and Isaac. And as we've seen, these covenant promises of God in Genesis to this promised family come through the bearing of children, passing on from one generation to another. And you have to imagine Abraham one day sitting on his porch, rocking in his chair. You know what, Isaac? You know what, Dad? Here's a story of a lovely lady. Your mom. It made I made some mistakes. You know your brother Ishmael. I wasn't listening. I wasn't trusting God's word. I don't want that to be the case for you, son. I want you to have a wife so that you can have a son. And that son can inherit the promises of God that he gave me back when I was in my homeland. God will fulfill his promises, son. Believe in him, and your faith too will be counted as righteousness. And as we saw last week, Isaac got a wife in Rebekah. And like his mother, she was barren for 20 years, the text says. And he probably remembered the story of his father, Abraham, being impatient, acted in sin. Ishmael came into the world. But what does Isaac do? Isaac prayed to God for a child. And he was doubly blessed with twins. 
Isaac didn't take matters into his own hands like his father did. He didn't listen to the doubting voice. Did God really say that he would promise? He went to God and asked God to fulfill his promises. And although an easily manipulated and passive man, as we'll see in the next few weeks, Abraham, or Isaac took initiative here, and God responded and blessed him with grace. And so God is continuing to be the hero, church. Our main idea last week, if you recall, was that we submit to God's word through prayer because God delights to respond. Because when he does, it's for his glory and for our joy. And so without going into sin, Isaac asks. Isaac wasn't trying to be the hero. He was allowing God to be the hero. And God is the hero presently in the story. And we will see this continue. I'm going to read what Eric read for us again in verse 22. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, and all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 66 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his gain, and Rebekah loved Jacob. And so it did not take long for the effects of sin to surface in the story. It was going so well. Abraham's chapter was done. Ishmael's chapter was done. Isaac was dependent and God blessed him. Many of you women have been pregnant. I hear that pregnancy can be uncomfortable at times. You can't sleep. You can't sit. can't do everything you did without having a child in your womb. Some foods make you gag. But this is no aversion to pickles. It is something far worse. There was something happening inside of her. Moses uses the word struggle. These two children wrestle and fight in the womb. I struggle to get out of bed sometimes after a long day or staying up late. I struggle to get on another Zoom call, which I think should be a new four-letter word added to our vocabulary This is not that type of struggle, friends. This is an aggressive fight. And this fight will continue for the entire history of these two boys. The language in the Hebrew is that of bruising and crushing, oppressing, smashing together. All kids fight. They argue. But this is like an MMA fight in the womb, and it would continue after these boys are born. And so like her husband did, Rebecca goes to the Lord in prayer. As the commentator Matthew Henry says, it is a great relief to the mind 
to spread our case before the Lord and ask counsel at his mouth. And God blesses and answers her as well. So we've come to a transition, not just by name with Isaac and Jacob, but from actions, from laughter to wrestling. Jacob, as we'll see, has a life characterized by wrestling. Wrestling with his brother, wrestling with his father, wrestling with his uncle Laban, wrestling with God. God got the last laugh, or as you recall, when Isaac was born, whose name means laughter. Jacob will wrestle with God. It's no longer God getting the last laugh. It's God allowing Jacob to wrestle, who means he will take hold. His name means to wrestle. The prophecy stated that the older would serve the younger, like Abel served and was submitted to Cain, who killed him, like Isaac did over Ishmael, and now for a third time, Jacob over Esau. This will happen again with Jacob's sons. Joseph will rule over all 11 of his brothers. And the very manner of this birth is a visible omen of the prophecy about these two boys. That this struggle that started in the womb immediately exits the womb. And it's a visible reminder of the struggle that will continue to take place between these two brothers in the chapters ahead. We see in the text that these, this birth and these two boys are worlds apart. My four children are very different. They have different personalities. They have different giftings. They like different things. But there is so much difference between these two boys that if it probably wasn't for their parents' testimony, you probably wouldn't have even thought them to be brothers. Not only did they look different, but they acted differently. Jacob was domesticated. Esau was nomadic, outdoorsy. Esau was a good hunter. Isaac was not. Jacob wasn't hairy. The text makes it very clear that Esau, even at birth, was very hairy, like he was wearing a jacket. Esau, I think, would be a good Vermonter. Hunting, wearing a good wool jacket. But he has a huge, but there's, what we see is a huge lack of wisdom in their parents. Isaac preferred Esau because of his hunting, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And what we see here, church, is a fallen world after creation, a created world fallen by sin. And these struggles that come about in the birth are a result of the fall that we saw back in Genesis chapter 3. These fighting brothers here, my kids fight, when my wife and I argue, they're all a result of sin. The prophet Malachi, a few hundred years later, picks up on this, and he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you said, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. 
we see God's hate for Esau and love for Jacob. The Apostle Paul refers to this as well in Romans chapter 9 in God's choosing of his people. Friends, this is where God is the hero and always is the hero. He was the hero leading up to this chapter. He is the hero in this chapter and he will always be the hero even for us today. Why would God hate Esau? God hates sin. All of us are born into sin. It doesn't take long to see once a child is born that we are sinners. This was all ordained, as Tyler read before, before the foundations of the world. This was communicated to Rebecca before the boys were even born, that the older would serve the younger. Why did God choose Abraham? We saw last week, he was just as pagan as everybody else. It is solely because God had grace. Paul's words in Romans 9 say this. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the, younger, younger will serve, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, I don't think you need a theology degree to figure this out, and oftentimes a theology degree makes it even more complicated we read God's word. We allow God's word to speak for itself. And church, we respond accordingly. We are all sinners before we come to know Christ. We are all bound to be punished for our sin because a holy God has to punish sin. He either punishes us or he punishes his son, Jesus. Everyone is on the same path, church, until God gives them the grace to believe, the grace to have faith, the grace to see the truths in God's word, the grace to respond, to hear these truths, the grace to transform our sinful hearts to be like Christ. We do not force God's hand, church. God, in his kindness, moves his hand towards us for his glory and for our joy. And Jacob didn't do anything to receive this grace. He was in the womb when these promises were made. For those who believe before the foundations of the world, God sets us apart. He adopts us into his family by the purpose of his will, as we saw in Ephesians, to the praise of his glorious grace. As the hero, even today, God deserves our worship. Sometimes we don't view God as the hero, though, when he punishes sin. Church, we cannot look at God like we look at each other. 
thinking that God acts like we act as people. God is holy. As Psalm 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. It is not Jacob who could have said in any way that he brought merit to the table. God had a purpose and he worked this out in his own way. Not by works. Before these boys were born, they came from the same father, the same conception, the same womb, having done nothing either good or bad. And all of this stresses God's divine initiative and God's grace. That's a God who is a mighty hero who deserves our worship. We see how this works itself out even further with these boys, picking back up in verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. These brothers are moving with an unstoppable force toward realizing the prophecy and the division and the wrestling. It's ironic that this hunter was famished. Maybe he wasn't a good Vermonter. I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, I can tend to get irritable. I have a good friend that asked me, Aaron, you seem to be getting a little hangry right now. And I don't like it when he does that, but he's right. Hunger and exhaustion make one vulnerable to manipulation by others. Our spiritual enemies and also people who are our enemies, justified or unjustified enemies. Esau is not as much exhausted from being tired, but he's starving and susceptible to irrational decisions and sin. Esau's hungry. His brother has stew. He's willing to do whatever he can to get some of it. He's drooling for this food and he's babbling on. But Jacob's reply is abrupt. It is direct. Give me your birthright. It's not like, how about I give you two dimes for a quarter? Jacob wants the birthright. And for the prophecies to be fulfilled, Jacob needs two things. He needs the birthright, which is the firstborn's entitled inheritance of the land and the estate. But he also needs the blessing of his father, which we'll see will come in a couple weeks. Esau says, I want some of that red stuff. He doesn't ask to eat some of the red stuff. In the language, it says, I want to gulp it up. He has no self-control. He's dramatic. And his brother takes advantage of this. He carelessly blabbers on, showing he is far from even being to the point of death. 
What value of being the firstborn would there be if I was dead? But Jacob has three words in reply in the original language. Swear to me at once. The wrestling continues with the cold, calculated, crafty demand to cash in on his brother's folly. Jacob was swift to go after the birthright. And God is providentially allowing and guiding Jacob's selfishness. We know God is in control, bringing about his wisdom and his sovereign acts to bring himself glory. Esau exaggerates his hunger. He exaggerates his exhaustion. He exaggerates his death. But worst of all, he exaggerates the insignificance of his own birthright. The people reading this would have been appalled at Esau's willingness to give up his birthright. Like many of you could be appalled if I said that high fructose corn syrup is actually maple syrup. I think a couple of you might have gagged in your mouth. Jacob needs him to swear. He needs a once and for all relinquishment of his rights. And it's not just a handshake gentleman's agreement. He knows Esau would never do this in a situation when Esau had all of his faculties, when he could control his emotions. The completion of the competition is in its later rounds. The wrestling match is starting to get heated up. John Calvin writes, It would have been his true wisdom rather than to undergo a thousand deaths than to renounce his birthright. But Esau chose otherwise, and the rights before God transferred to his brother Jacob, the wrestling deceiver. So how is God the friend or the hero here, friends? Well, God fulfills his promises. God fulfills his words. He does back then, and he also will for us today. As this passage looks to the future, to our future, Even through the sinful actions of these people, God looks forward today. Ishmael was conceived in sin, but Isaac would rule over him. Abel, his worship was preferred. His older brother murdered him. And now we see Jacob lording over his brother Esau. And this is another reminder of God's choice is solely dependent on his grace and frequently church it's a mystery as paul says in romans 3 no one is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one god calls some He snatches some out of our destruction. And that should cause us, church, to be very worshipful. But there's a warning here. You see what God is doing? He's making it clear that His choice of who becomes part of the covenant is not based on our achievement, our abilities. It's unconditional. That God is in control 
that God punishes sin, but he sent his son to save those who would believe in him for their sin through the line of Jacob, not the line of Esau. Let me read verse 23 again. It says, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided, and one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so, church, God decides the destiny of these boys before they were even born, before they took their first breath. Paul doesn't say, not just say that, but he says, They had done nothing good or bad. Neither one deserved the grace. But to make it absolutely clear that God is in control, he chooses the younger out of order over the older. It is only from grace. And so friends, we will never understand or experience the fullness of God's love until what it until we understand and we grasp what it means to be chosen freely by God on the basis of nothing in us. From creation to the history of the world, we see progress through the first half of Genesis. To the plan of salvation through Jesus, we saw at Christmas and ending on his death and resurrection on Easter weekend. All of this points to the gift of your own faith for the glory of God. He's the hero of every story in the Bible. As one psalmist says, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your law, because the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. God has secrets. Some call them mysteries. But those who believe in Christ, we call it grace. We call it faith. And we get eternal life. Esau sold his birthright because he was dying. Or thought he was. Jacob gave him life by giving him some food. Kind of like a resurrection. And John... Chapter 6, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so God was the hero before Genesis 25. He is the hero in Genesis 25, and God is a hero looking forward today, here, today. Jesus already has the birthright, as Paul says, that he was firstborn of all creation in Colossians chapter 1, because he was not born, he was not created. Jesus gives us food to eat, his eternal and life-giving words. And when we believe in those words, His death on the cross for our sins, His resurrection, He will give us resurrection ourselves and a newness of life. It is only by the grace of God, friends, before we were ever born, and that is a gift. The world around us is starving. 
They are starving for the word of God. And if you're here and you are starving today, today could be the day of your salvation as well. Believe in the gospel and be saved. If you're a, if you're a Christian, feast continually on God's word and allow it to nourish you, to embolden your faith, to lead you to worship because we don't deserve any of the good gifts that we get from God. Jesus died to pay the death for our sins and he rose to give us a newness of life. And so let's take this bread of life to the world around us that desperately needs to hear it. Let's worship now because he deserves it. Let's worship in song, the giving of our tithes and offerings because he is a gracious, loving father. So as I invite the worship team back up, would you pray with me? Father, you are so good. You have called us out of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son, and we worship you because of that. God, just like Jacob did nothing to deserve your grace before he was born, God, we acknowledge that before the foundations of the world that you've called us, You've adopted us as sons and daughters, and we thank you. That is the only response that we could have, is thankfulness. And God, out of that thankfulness, would you help us to be obedient? You would help us to love our neighbor as ourselves and worship you, the only true God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God, would you be glorified in the rest of our time this morning? And we pray this in Jesus' name.